you would turn with me in your Bibles to Esther chapter 2, I'm going to begin reading in verse 1 this morning. Um, let me give you a heads up as far as, uh, nowadays you have to sort of rate your sermons. Um, this one's sort of uh, somewhere between PG, PG-13. Just let you know in advance, I'm not, uh, I'm purposely not trying to be provocative whatsoever, but at the same time, uh, the material is, is quite dark. It's much darker than I think the average person realizes growing up in the church and have heard, having heard this story many times before. Um, I'm going to give you perhaps a different take than what you're used to on it, but I, I do hope that um, uh, you uh, examine it for yourselves like a good Berean. Go home and study the scriptures to see if what I'm saying is right. All right. With that being said, hear the word of the Lord. After these things, when the king, when the anger of King Ahasuerus had abated, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what he what had been decreed against her. Then the king's young men who attended him said, Let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king. Let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa, the citadel, under custody of Higai the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women. Let their cosmetics be given them, and let the young woman who, woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This pleased the king, and he did so. Now there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, son of Shimei, son of Kish, a Benjamite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives, carried away with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. He was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure, was lovely to look at, and when her father and mother had died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So when the king's order and his edict was proclaimed, when many young women were gathered in Susa the citadel in the custody of Higai, Esther also was taken into the king's palace and put in custody of Higai, who had charge of the women. And the young woman pleased him and won his favor, and he quickly provided her with her cosmetics and her portion of food with seven chosen young women from the king's palace and advanced her and her young women to the best place in the harem. Esther had not made known her people or kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. And every day Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. Now when the turn came for each young woman to go into King Ahasuerus, after being 12 months under the regulations for the women, since this was the regular period of their beautifying, six months with oil of myrrh and six months with spices and ointments for women, when the young woman went into the king in this way, she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening she would go in, in the morning she would return to the second harem in custody of Shazgaz the king's eunuch who was in charge of the concubines. She would not go in to the king again unless the king delighted in her and she was summoned by name. When the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihail, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his own daughter to go into the king, she asked for nothing except what he got, the king's eunuch who had charge of the women advised. Now Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. And when Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus into his royal palace in the tenth month, which is the month of Tibet, in the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the women. And she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king gave a great feast for all of his officials and servants. It was Esther's feast. 
He also granted a remission of taxes to the provinces and gave gifts with royal generosity. Let's pray together. Father, we come before your holy word and we ask, Lord, that you would continue to give us life and wisdom and faith in Jesus Christ as we come to uh, the word of Christ, we, we pray. Uh, Father, that as we draw near to you, that you would indeed draw near to us. Uh, grant us hope uh, through the gospel, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. If you grew up in the church and went to Sunday school as a kid, you likely have heard this story many, many times. The amazing story of Esther, but I sincerely doubt that you were told most of the facts of the story particularly in regards to the events that occurred in this chapter. Many have compared Esther, the story of Esther, to Cinderella, if you will. Uh, a handsome, noble prince is in search of love, and so he invites all the young ladies to a ball at his castle and uh, chooses the most humble yet lovely girl to be his bride, raising her up from rags to riches. Sounds similar, right? In that story, all the young ladies had to do was dance and she would win the heart of her king. In this story, the women have to do a lot more than dancing. And they haven't just been invited to a dance. They've been forced to come against their will. And it's not like a beauty contest wherein one woman is chosen and the rest get to go home. In this competition, if you will, all the women are enslaved for the rest of their lives. They become one of his many concubines, forbidden from ever marrying again, and being secluded from society for, again, the rest of her life. She would spend the remaining days, the remaining years, encased in his castle as one of his living dolls. It's not what you think it is. Um, I, I made uh, some of my family watch the movie One Night with the King the other night, just for more research. And it's laughable how it's presented in most movies, as if it's a true romance story. It's not. That's not what this is. In reality, this story is much more like Beauty and the Beast than this Cinderella. It's not the Disney version. Um, to be a member of the King's Harem is not the stuff of fairy tales. It's a very dark place, wherein a man with unlimited power essentially kidnaps and sexually abuses hundreds, even thousands of women. That's really what this story is about. Uh, we're not told exactly how many women he brought in at this time, but later historians tell us generally could be 300 a year. Uh, we know Solomon had 300 concubines in addition to his 700 wives, right? Uh, we know that uh, there were 127 provinces in the Persian Empire, so if on average he took 300, then that would mean the two prettiest ladies in every province were invited to spend the night with the king. Having three daughters of my own, this story kind of sickens me. Uh, if you think about it, it's a very sobering tale for all young people today. First, for every young girl who constantly looks in the magazines and compares her body to the models and wishes she were prettier. Um, if you look in Scripture, oftentimes that type of unique beauty is more dangerous than it is a blessing. In fact, it's almost seen as a curse. If you think about it, every single time a woman is noted for her beauty in Scripture, outstanding beauty, almost every time it's taken advantage of by some evil man. Whether it's 
If you remember Amnon falling in love with Tamar and then raping his sister, whether it's uh, King David seeing Bathsheba on the roof of his palace and taking her for his own and then killing her husband, whether it's uh, Abraham telling everyone that his wife is his sister and then having her taken in by two different men of power and potentially allowing her to be abused by them out of fear himself. Uh, over and over again, we see this is the case. We know that in Solomon's day, in addition, again, to his 700 wives, we're told explicitly that he has these 300 concubines. They are not for political alliances. Ecclesiastes tells us that it is so that he can test his pleasure. Again, this is a pagan king we're dealing with. So if you think Solomon's bad, it's even worse. In this case, it's not a romance story. It's not. Beauty can be dangerous. But so too can strength in youthfulness. If you think about it, uh, uh, as bad as it is for the women, it's almost equally as bad for the young men. Uh, the Greek historian Herodotus again would tell us that on average, every year, about 500 young men would be taken from the areas of Babylon and, and other uh, areas in Assyria to serve in the Persian court. Once they're procured, every one of them are castrated immediately. 500 young men castrated, forced to be eunuchs against their will. You may not think of it this way, but if you consider it more than likely, Daniel and his three friends were eunuchs as well. Again, we're not told all the facts in Sunday school. I can understand sometimes why we don't share all the facts. It can be disturbing, but this is what really is happening. Most of us think of these types of things as being in the past. They don't happen today. Well, that's not true either. There's more sex trafficking in the world today than there ever was in ancient times. It's, it's horrendous what's happening in our world today, and not just in other countries. We're talking about right here in the United States. Thousands and thousands of women who have been kidnapped and enslaved. Thousands and thousands of young men who have been enslaved and forced to labor against their will. This is the norm now, and it's increasing year by year. Uh, all around the world. Additionally, we know that pornography and its rise amongst the nations, its legal rise in our country and elsewhere, has contributed to this. Every young man is growing up with the idea that a woman is a sex object. And that every young man has this desire in his mind that he thinks that he's a king and can have a different woman every night. That's what pornography does. That's what it teaches. But it's not just young men. The sad part about our culture today is every year, more and more children, including girls, are subjected to pornography when they're like five and six years old. This is the state that we're in today. It's, it, it was bad then. It's getting bad again today. On top of that, I, I just watched a documentary um, that was, that's out, just came out a couple days ago called What is a Woman? It's a good question. We can't seem to answer that today in our culture. Um, but in this particular documentary, um, uh, really asking a lot about transgenderism in our country, uh, nowadays doctors are regularly prescribing a drug called Lupram to young boys. It's essentially chemical castration. And it's being forced upon young boys who question in any possible way that 
I'm not sure who I am. Well, let's castrate you. In the same way, we, we see now that in our culture, we have box stores now selling different devices to hide the gender of young boys and girls. So we literally have boys who are being castrated. We have girls undergoing mastectomies. And all of this is done legally in our country. So again, this is the reality. It's much darker than we think about it. So if I haven't already ruined for you the book of Esther and ruined for you our view of the world, <laughs> I hope that give you some light now um, through the gospel of Christ as it's found even in the book of Esther. Um, but I want to set the tone for you. Don't, don't romanticize this. That's not what this is. So if we take a closer look at the text, starts, the chapter begins with King Xerxes or Ahasuerus, depending upon uh, what your translation calls him. Uh, he's remembering how he has deposed Vashti. And truly, he has some genuine sorrow. He's regretted his decision. He did it rashly. He did it while he was intoxicated. Nevertheless, he's, he's done it. Uh, unlike when God remembers his people, uh, this case, uh, all he remembers is how beautiful she was and how much he misses her. We aren't told exactly how much time has passed, but... Uh, He's regretted it. But again, as you know from Esther and some of the other books in the Old Testament, the law of the Medes and Persians cannot be revoked, so he cannot withdraw that edict. He cannot bring her back into his palace. She is forbidden forever. And so, in the midst of his regret, it's probably in the evening at this period of time, um, we find that uh, it's not the older, wiser counselors, supposedly, that are giving him uh, counsel now, but rather his younger attendants, those who would be in the palace throughout the night. And, and they uh, give him uh, new counsel. And it's not surprising the type of counsel they give. More than likely, they would want the same thing if they were in his position, have unlimited power, um, and probably weren't eunuchs. Um, they're telling him that, uh, go and put on this competition, if you will, and have every beautiful young woman in the empire, come and compete for your affections. Again, if you look at the timeline of what's going on, I shared with you last week that if you put this together with what we know from Herodotus, um, this is around the period of time that right after he uh, rejects Vashti, he, he goes away to battle to do battle against the Greeks. And so he's gone probably somewhere between two, two and a half years if he's there the whole time. And if you add to that uh, what else is going on, he's, he's coming back. Now he's regretted some of these actions. He's putting on this competition. And uh, we're told, unlike most other kings, ancient kings at this time, who mainly got wives for the sake of political alliances or for the sake of strengthening their ties within their own uh, realm, um, very rarely would they ever do it for the sake of integrity. But in this case, the only attributes the young men give to the king are she has to be young, she has to be a virgin, and she has to be willing to please you, basically, in so many terms. When you think about it, with all the women that are brought into the harem, it's 127 provinces. It's throughout India all the way to Africa, this huge place. We're told that they speak many different languages. Clearly, the king is not looking for a miscongeniality. Half of them don't even speak his language. He's looking for a piece of meat, a pretty one. Again, the timeline in those two chapters, if you give the fact that he's probably out of town for about two, two and a half years, 
It takes about a year to prepare them for the marriage because, you know, they're unclean ladies. It takes a year to get them clean, to get them uh, ready for the king. You give that, and that still leaves about somewhere between somewhere a year to three years where he's already tried out a number of other women prior to Esther. Keep that in mind. Gives a whole new meaning to a thousand and one Arabian nights. So put that in perspective as Esther is facing this situation. This is not a love story. It's not a romance story. It's not a rags to riches story in that sense. It's interesting though, depending upon the commentary that you look at on the book of Esther, she's seen as one of three things. Either she's seen as a victim or she's seen as a compromiser, or she's seen as a hero. And honestly, I, I've uh, meditated upon a lot this week, and read a lot this week, watched a lot this week. I think she's a little all three, honestly. Um, very complicated character in the beginning chapters of the book of Esther. I mean, certainly she's a victim. She's a victim of her circumstances. Although there are surely would have been some women who actually wanted to be taken into the king's palace. If you think about it, there are a lot of poor women throughout the empire. And to go into the king's harem basically means she's going to live a life of luxury and pampering the rest of her life. It's a pointless existence, granted, but still much better than what some of them may have been experiencing elsewhere. I, I sincerely doubt that that was Esther's dream whatsoever. Esther knew who she was. Esther knew where she came from. She grew up in a, uh, a home that had taught her the law of God, grew up in a home that taught her the ways of her people. She would have preferred to have married a Jewish boy and settled down with her family. I, I don't doubt that in the least. But she didn't have that choice. She was essentially kidnapped, forced against her will to come to this place and to compete in this ridiculous contest. But at the same time, it does seem as if she's somewhat of a compromiser as well. Now, let me explain that. Mordecai tells her to keep her identity a secret. Now, it wouldn't be the first time in Scripture that an elder Jew gave bad advice to a younger person. If you remember in our study in the book of Ruth, you remember when Naomi tells Ruth, hey, you know, put some perfume on washed up, go to the threshing floor, you know, around midnight or after, wait until they're all intoxicated and tired, and then, you know, go lay down at the feet of, uh, what's his name, and see what happens. Uh, even Boaz, when he finds Ruth laying at his feet, immediately is concerned for her reputation. Naomi had put her in a very bad situation. Thankfully, it worked out well in the end, but nevertheless, Ruth followed this counsel. I don't think it was good counsel at all. Again, I can't imagine any of you saying the same thing to your daughters. This sounds like a great idea. Well, in this case, Mordecai clearly wants to protect her. He has good intentions. He wants to keep her safe. He wants to, you know, for whatever reason or another, and so he tells her, just don't tell them who you are. Don't tell them what you believe. Don't tell them where you came from. Now, that's going to cause all sorts of complications from the beginning because to be in the king's harem, there's going to be all sorts of unlawful things that will take place on a daily basis. Um, not a good scenario. 
But it, it, it makes sense somewhat, because it's interesting. In, in most other places in Scripture, when we're told the name of someone uh, who's living in a pagan realm, we're told both his Hebrew name as well as his pagan name, right? So we think of Daniel, and we think of uh, his pagan names, and his three friends and their Jewish names, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. In this case, we're only given Mordecai's pagan name. Never told his Hebrew name. Uh, Mordecai, if you know, uh, comes from the Babylonian Marduk, which is a god of the Babylonians. Never is it mentioned that he has a Hebrew name at all. Whereas Esther's Hebrew name is given in addition to her um, Babylonian name, you know, her, her Hebrew name is Hadassah, which means myrtle tree. But before entering into the palace, more than likely is when she's given her name Esther. Esther comes from the Babylonian Ishtar, the goddess of love. So she's sort of presenting herself, if you will, as an Aphrodite, as a Venus, if you will. That's sort of the counsel that she's given to take on that type of name. It also means star, but not in the certain, you know, the kind of star search kind of manner, but uh, uh, certainly something's not quite right. Mordecai is telling her to fully immerse herself in this godless culture to protect herself from what might happen. Again, if we compare Esther with Daniel and his three Hebrew friends, we see again and again how they faithfully identify themselves with God and with God's people. And the complications that that causes, they're living under the tyranny of a pagan king in a foreign land, but yet they refuse to eat the king's delicacies, they refuse to bow down to his idols, they refuse to worship their gods, and instead continue to publicly pray to God and publicly worship the Lord alone. Again, we see every time that immediately causes complications, that immediately causes persecution, immediately causes some aspect of suffering, but yet they're willing to take the stand to do that. Now again, granted, there's four of them. I can see it's helpful when you have more than one person doing this all by yourself. Esther, on the other hand, would have eaten at the king's table. She would have drunk the king's wine. She would have participated in all the king's affairs, whether it's his worship, whether it's his entertainment, whatever it is that he wanted. She would have participated in all of it. I don't blame her. She's in a very difficult position. She's a woman who's completely cut off from her people, except for a word that comes through another guy from Mordecai. She has no power. She has very little to say. And yet she still could have spoken up if she was willing to suffer. When Daniel and his three friends were commanded to eat at the king's table, they spoke. Daniel spoke with the eunuch and said, can we try to do it a little differently here? based upon what I know in God's law. So he's having to identify his heritage. He's having to identify his worship. And as a result, the eunuch has leniency. He has to test him for 10 days first to see if it's going to work. But yes, he's able to not enter into some of those things. On the other hand, Esther, we're told, does whatever the eunuch tells her to do, no matter what. Instead of passively finding favor in his sight and in the sight of the other leaders, as we're told in Joseph and Daniel, the language is quite different in the book of Esther. Instead of saying she found favor, it says, continually, she won favor. So she purposely is doing what she needs to do to advance, if you will. She could have resisted, but she would have faced the consequences. Of course, the worst part, it's not just that not just the fact that she's probably breaking the Sabbath day, she's probably breaking the, the laws concerning uh, kosher foods and a bunch of other 
uh, lesser laws in the Scripture, but clearly she's willing to commit sexual immorality with the man she's not married to and to also be unequally yoked with a pagan king. Now compare that with John the Baptist in the past we read earlier. Again, John the Baptist, you know, he's a man, so that does make some difference. Uh, but nevertheless, he's a lone soul. He's in the palace, and he's continually rebuking the king for his sexual immorality, saying, that wife is not your wife. He pays for it. Suffers in prison, later is beheaded, because he admits who he is. He admits what the law of God says. Esther's not required to do that. All she has to do is sort of admit who she is. Maybe maybe she'll get a break. Maybe she doesn't, but, but she doesn't. So what we find, though, is the, 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 the tradition that's surrounding Esther, both from the Greek side as well as from the Hebrew side, are constantly trying to defend her and the actions that she takes. Um, in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, there are additional passages that are given that, that try to make this book more God-centered. So, you know, the book of Esther doesn't ever mention God, doesn't ever mention prayer, doesn't ever mention any of those things, doesn't mention the law of God, Jerusalem, the, the temple, nothing. So the Septuagint tries to add to it to make it look more kosher, more holy, all those things. And so in, in the Septuagint, there's a passage which Esther supposedly prays in a God complaining of having to sleep with an uncircumcised male. She's also complaining of having to eat unkosher foods and a bunch of other things, but clearly it's not a part of the original text. The Midrash, which is a Jewish commentary on the Old Testament, likewise tries to say, well, she tried to hide from the king for so many years, you know, uh, to again make it look like um, uh, all this was against her will. But again, that's, that's not in Scripture. I understand why they want to protect her reputation. I do, I get it. She is a victim. But yet she also chooses to fornicate with the king, disobeying God's law in order to keep the law of the Mers, the, the Medes and the Persians. Especially when you keep in mind, around the same period of time, Ezra is telling the men in Israel to put away their foreign wives, to divorce them and to get rid of their kids in order to maintain the holiness of the people of God. This is around the same time period. So you see in Jerusalem, again, keep in mind, Mordecai and Esther are still in a foreign land. They don't have to be necessarily, unless we, there's something else we don't know that's not told us. Many hundreds of people went back to Jerusalem. They didn't. And now we see in Jerusalem, they're doing everything to establish a holy people, getting rid of all foreign pagan influences that they can. But yet, contrasting that, Esther is fully immersing herself in a pagan environment and and doing things with the foreign king. All right, now that you think that I have just beat up a woman, let me share what else I can tell you. Well, I think this goes along with most every Old Testament scenario that we have as well. Uh, can't forget how, again, Abraham willingly gave up his wife, not once, twice. Same thing happened with Isaac. His son followed in his dad's footsteps. Oh, she's my sister. She's not my wife. You can have her. Certainly we think of King David willingly taking another man's wife, killing her husband. Don't think I'm picking on a woman here. I'm, I'm just saying uh, there's a reason why I think she's a victim as well as a compromiser and well as a hero, but not till later on. This is not the hero part that we're reading about today. It's important that we don't turn biblical biography, if you will, into hagiography. In other words, we're trying to make them look holier than they are. She's not acting the holy part here. Um, these are not perfect people.
people in the Old Testament, just as we're not perfect people. We also make bad decisions. We also do things out of fear. We also have compromised in terms of God's law. Every single person in this room has. We all have. Which reminds us that Esther is not the true hero in the story. And that's important that we get that. Esther's not the real hero. Neither is Mordecai. They both fall short of God's glory in how they respond to the situation that they're thrust into. It's important that we see that. Because I think most people, especially in Sunday school, try to make Esther uh, the hero, and that's all she is in the story. And as a result, I don't know, are, are little girls then told to be submissive like Esther and just smile and do whatever you're told, and then everything will work out in the end? Is that what we're saying? Is that the story? Is that the moral of the story? I, I hope not. That all you have to do is please men, and then everything will work out. No. Clearly, there are times where we're told to please God, even when that doesn't please men. To stand up for what we know to be true and, and to be different from the culture. I, I don't think that this is a moral case here for us to follow in Esther's footsteps. In some cases, it's outright evil for us to please men rather than God. And I think that's what's happening. Esther doesn't become a heroine until later when she is in a position where she's not just thinking about herself, but she's thinking about her entire people. And saying, am I going to identify myself with the one true God? Am I going to identify myself with my people? But for now, it doesn't seem as if that's the case. It seems as if she has fully assimilated into the world of the empire. She has lived only for one kingdom, and it's not God's. She sought to protect herself. She tried to advance and, and, and do what she had to do. Now, again, I, I, it's, it's so hard because I'm not in her position. I, I can't say what would happen if I were in the same position. But if you think about it, if she's going to walk in this way, well, she might as well try to win, right? So you've got to give her credit for that at least. Uh, she, she is wise in how she goes about it. She gets into the good graces, if you will, of the head eunuch, and she follows his instructions explicitly to make sure that she has a chance of becoming the wife. If you think about it, as bad as the wife scenario is, the regular concubine in the harem is a thousand times worse. Right For the rest of her life, she's stuck in this miserable condition where she's basically treated as a plaything and then left to her own devices until she finally grows old and she dies. That's the extent of that life. So the Scripture summarizes this passage by basically telling us that uh, Esther pleases the king and that the king loves her more than all the other women. But we know that's not fully true. Does he really love her? He doesn't even know her. In fact, the same words here that are used are the same words that are used in Genesis in reference to Amnon loving his sister Tamar and then rapes her and then tosses her out of his bed. Same word, he loves her. <laughs> Is that love? Oh... Nevertheless, the king is pleased with her, and that's all that matters at this point. Again, the whole point is he is a megalomaniac, has all the power in the world, he has all the desire for pleasure, he wants to celebrate, and so that's what he does. From the empire's perspective, at least, the king is happy, which makes the people happy, because when the king is not happy, everyone's scared to death. So now he's giving gifts, he's giving tax breaks. We love tax breaks. How many times have you voted for a tax break rather than for godliness? That's what is happening here. 
people are willing to follow whatever it takes to make sure that they're financially happy, that the government's happy, will do whatever they want. Very difficult to stand up to that. Thankfully, this isn't the end of the story. But we're going to have to take a break here because it's going to get into a different segment. I want to be able to bring in some application if you've listened thus far and have given me some patience. It's interesting, four times in this passage, Mordecai is called an exile. Four times. Three times in the same verse. ESV in verse 6 says he was carried away, he was carried away, he was carried away. And similarly, it says the same thing of, of Esther, that they are all both exiles living in a foreign land in Persia. And, and it's interesting, because the correlation, obviously, in the New Testament, every single believer is also called an exile. That that's a very distinctive mark of a believer. Not because we're forced to live in another country and speak a different language, but through our union with Christ Jesus, already we have inherited a right in another kingdom where the King of Kings already sits on His throne. Already, we are in that kingdom even as we live still in this kingdom of men. We're in between two kingdoms. So although we live in this age, we're, we're learning to live in another age and we're constantly reminded of that truth again and again in the New Testament. Hebrews eleven thirteen. we just studied Hebrews recently in the Hall of Faith. It says at the end of that passage that all the believers who died in faith greeted the promises of God from afar, having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on earth. Uh, again, I'm, I'm not trying to treat Esther unfairly, but at this moment she's not acknowledging that she is an exile and a stranger. The Scripture acknowledges that she is, but she doesn't acknowledge it. She hides her identity. The Apostle Peter, in the same way, in his first epistle, he's writing to a bunch of people in a bunch of different churches throughout Asia Minor. Three times he tells them, you are all exiles. You are exiles. You are exiles. You're sojourners on this earth. Live as someone who belongs to another kingdom, not just to the kingdom that you're in. He's continually instilling in them an identity that they are the very people of God, that their conduct ought to match that calling. They're different. They're holy. And that their Gentile neighbors not only should see the difference in their conduct, but give glory to God because they know who you are and what you stand for. How can that happen if you're hiding your identity? How can that happen if you're not acknowledging your God? It can't. In every age, though, every time, there are many who try to hide their faith try to hide their heritage, to blend in with the crowd for one reason or another. In fact, the, the name Esther, as I said in the Persian, means star. It's related to the goddess of Ishtar. But there's a Jewish version of the same letters in that word that literally the word Esther in Hebrew means hidden or the hidden one. It's like a play on words here in the Old Testament. So in other words, Esther is hiding herself in the midst of the crowd. She's purposely hiding her identity. And because of that, she ends up breaking a number of God's laws, compromising in a number of different ways. It's because she denies any affiliation with God that she continues to break all of His Word. It's the same for us, just as uh, we learned in the children's song. What was that song we learned a long time ago? This little light of mine, I'm going to... Hide it under a bushel? 
I'm going to let it shine, right? That's the problem, is if we hide it, we can't shine it. When we don't let it shine, we're seeking to compromise and follow the ways of the world. That's what the Scripture teaches us again and again. Sometimes it's out of fear of the consequences. Sometimes it's because we've fallen in love with the world itself, which is even more dangerous. Sometimes we do that at school. So we think of all of our college students going off to college, um, going into the workplace. You're going to be tempted to hide your identity. You're going to be tempted to say, ah, it's not really that important to me. You're going to be tempted to act just like Esther did in this case. And what will that lead to? Sexual immorality of all forms. Hypocrisy in many ways. I mean, I can't tell you how many times we see again and again those who grew up in the church and then something happens, they begin to compromise, they have sex outside of marriage, they eventually end up possibly getting married to an unbeliever. Over and over again, that's what happens. And so many other ways of hypocrisy as well. It's normal. It, it does happen when people take their eyes off of Christ. And that's why Esther is not the true hero of the story. Christ is. Every passage in Scripture, Luke 24, tells us it's all about Christ. It points us to Christ in some way. Now, think of it this way. Jesus also grew up in a place far away from home, right? Jesus grew up in a foreign land. He, too, was offered a kingdom through compromise. Think about it. We see as soon as he enters into his ministry, Matthew chapter 4, verse 8, the devil takes him to a very high mountain, shows him all the kingdoms of this world and their glory, and he says to them, I will give you all of this if you will fall down and worship me. Now, in the day in which we live, no one's going to come out and say, well, just worship the devil and everything will be good. <laughs> no one says that. But is that any different than what Esther's being offered? Just do what everybody tells you to do. All the kingdoms of the world will be offered to you. you immediately, all the riches, the glory, all of it will come along. And you might think for Jesus, well, that's no temptation at all. Why would he follow that? But think about it. If he does what Satan is offering him, there's no suffering. No heartache. No consequences in that sense, at least from the devil's perspective. Immediately, there's the kingdom, which is what the Father promised him all along. And we think about it, if we just go along with the program, what the world is offering to us, we think, ah, no suffering. Enjoy the kingdom that we have here on earth. But there's much more to that. And that's why we love the fact that when we see Jesus being tempted, he says, no, you should worship the Lord your God only. Bow down to him only. And we, we, we see that not only does he not love the world in that way and the things of the world in the way that we're tempted to, but rather he loves the Lord with all of his heart and he loves his bride so much that he's willing to lay down his life for her. He's willing to die for her. If you think about it, his soon-to-be bride for whom he died really wasn't all that lovely. You think about it? Um, King Xerxes was only looking for the most beautiful women to possibly be his bride, right? Choosing the two of the best in every province. 
King Jesus doesn't have that same M.O. He doesn't look for the most beautiful people. He doesn't look for the most powerful. He doesn't look for those of noble birth. Instead, uh, we're told explicitly, he chose what is low and despised in the world to be his bride. And then he sets his love upon a harlot to commit himself to her, to the one who has compromised, to the one who has denied, to the one who has failed and entered in so much miserable sin. And he enters into a covenant of grace with her and says, I'm going to love you forever. I'm not beating up Esther to beat up Esther. I beat up every one of us in this room because we're not any different from Esther. We all have fallen into that same trap. We all have looked to the ways of the world and tried to do it the world's way. The beauty of the gospel is that Christ came to save sinners. That Christ came to save failures. That Christ came to save compromisers. The gospel's beautiful. It really is. But I'll tell you this, uh, the beauty of the gospel doesn't end just with that. We, we, we see that First uh, Corinthians 6 and 7, we see uh, over and over again that, that Christ comes to save fornicators. Christ comes to save adulterers. Christ comes to save uh, even the homosexual. There's hope for every single person in this room. Christ comes to save hypocrites. Christ comes to save those who are worldly and don't yet recognize it, and those who recognize it but yet haven't done anything about it. He comes to save them. But they have to admit their sin. They have to see the truth of what's really going on and look to Christ by faith. Indeed, there is salvation for sinners. Christ came to save sinners. And God's grace is greater than all our sin. All of it. But I don't want to finish there either. Um, I think if I just stop there, when we, we think of justification, He saves us by grace, through faith alone, He saves us. But He doesn't leave us there. He doesn't leave us wallowing in our sin for the rest of our lives saying, thank God He saves miserable wretches like me and I'm still a miserable wretch who will never get better. That's not the Gospel. The Gospel says much more than that. I think it's so funny that King Xerxes required the women to go through a year of beauty treatments. Really? I mean, Persia is a pretty hot place. And I'm sure there are a lot of stinky people. But still, a year? Give me a break. But, there, but there's some corresponding reality to this that I think does make sense. When you think about it, the Lord Jesus, not only does He die for His bride, He then sends His Holy Spirit, if you sort of think of Him almost like the head eunuch there, to begin our beauty treatments. You ever thought of it that way? Sanctification is an ongoing beauty treatment in which the Lord is saying, yeah, you're an ugly hag, but I'm not going to leave you that way. I'm going to make you beautiful. I'm going to make you holy. I'm going to make you live up to the calling which you've received. I, I tell you, you know, I, I, when I first understood justification, I understood He loves me, He has saved me, no matter how bad I have screwed up, I, it's glorious. But when I understood sanctification, even more glorious. I'm, okay, but He hasn't left me there. There's hope. I can change. I don't have to keep following those old ways. I don't have to be the hypocrite anymore. I don't have to be the immoral person anymore. I can improve. 
Again, I don't get beautiful immediately, but many beauty treatments the rest of my life. The Lord is continuing to work on me in that regard. And it makes sense because technically the marriage feast hasn't come yet, right? So we haven't been presented to the groom just yet. And so we're constantly undergoing these beauty treatments. And that's one of the reasons why we celebrate the Lord's Supper. Uh, the Lord's Supper is a feast. It's a feast to celebrate what Christ has already done, that He has already saved us by grace through the shedding of His own blood. But it, it's also a promise of a greater feast that is still yet to come. That every time we eat at the Lord's Supper, He is renewing His vow of love unto us and saying, I still love you. I still I'm faithful to you. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. I have saved you. I will save you to the end. And I'm also committed to continuing your beauty treatments. You will get more beautiful. Why? Because in the end, Christ gets the glory when at the marriage of the the Lamb and that feast, He gets the glory when He sees His bride now without blemish without stain, without wrinkle, beautiful in every way. He's taken this woman who was just an ugly hag and has turned her into something awesome. The communion table tells us that that's true, that that's the reality, that that's what he's going to accomplish through us. It is not over yet. The the rest of the story is still yet to be told. But it's precisely because of his love for us that he wants to show us off as his bride. He wants to continue what he has begun. He will finish what he started. But it's also part of our renewal ceremony as well. So this, this, this is a covenant meal is what it is. We're also renewing our vows unto the Lord, saying, I still believe. I still love you. I still am so sick of my sin. I want to get better. I've committed I want to submit to you. I want to know you. I want to love you. Now again, we're, we're not just saying, well, I'm going to do it in my own strength. But we're, we're crying out to God, Lord, help me. I don't want to be the old hag anymore. I don't want to be the old man anymore. I don't want to follow in those old ways anymore. I want to grow. I want to love. I want to be glorified. Help me to do that. That's, that's the story of the gospel. It's repeated again and again throughout Scripture. It's repeated again and again at the Lord's table. That's my story. God took someone who was very unlovely and is slowly but surely showing forth something of His glory through a broken vessel who has sinned greatly. And yet, there's hope for me. I know it's the story of every person who has trusted in Christ Jesus. It can be your story too. But you, you have to admit what you are. You're an ugly hag. <laughs> it's true. You're a compromiser. You're a very worldly person who has refused to follow God's laws. You've made some really bad decisions. You have sinned in a multitude of ways and God has been very patient with you. But the Lord has sent His Son to die for sinners, the worst of them. Trust Him. Trust in that gospel of salvation. He does save bad people. But He doesn't save good people. 
He saves the sick. He doesn't save the healthy. If you continue to say you're good, you're healthy, you don't have any issues, you will never understand the gospel of Jesus Christ. He only saves hags. Trust in the Lord Jesus. You will be saved. Trust in the Lord Jesus. You will be sanctified. Trust in the Lord Jesus. You will be glorified. And you will make yourself ready for the day of the Lamb's high feast. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father, we ask that you would help us to understand the beauty of the gospel. We pray that you would help us to understand our sin and our need to confess it. Help us to understand our need to rely upon you, not just for our justification, but for the rest of our lives. And that sanctifying process of how the Holy Spirit continues to show us what it means to walk in a way that's pleasing to the King, what it means to, to love the King a true and godly King, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. Help us, Lord, to submit to that process. Help us to prepare ourselves, not to live for ourselves, but to live for the glory of our King. We pray in Jesus.